I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygas, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! This is the Roll for Initiative podcast, volume three, issue number 143. DM Vince sitting here with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. Hopefully Matt isn't looping himself again. DM Chad also. <laughs> hey, hey. And DM Nick. Hello, everyone. We are doing take number two of this podcast because we both screwed up the first time. So anyway, we're back with a brand new show. And this week we're going to focus on what do we call this, Chad? We are calling this first edition AD&D for the beginners. That's right. You asked for it. We answered five years later, but we did answer the question. So. Hey. <laughs> You know, we do what we can. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, we're going to jump right into a couple things here. First, we just want to say North Texas RPG Con is coming up in June, in the beginning of June, first couple of days. Uh, Go to NorthTexasRPGCon.com. I think it's NXTRPG.com for details. Uh, Go there. I'll be there. That's about it. And there'll be a lot of TSR alumni there. Uh, Mm. A lot. Frank Menser, uh, Tim Kask, uh, uh, Steve Marsh. Um, well, Jeff D was an alum, was he? Jeff D was more of an artist. He was an alum, but he was he was on the artist staff. Okay. Uh, Cook uh, is it Steve Cook? Right, Steve Cook will be there from Second Edition. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. There's quite a few. Uh, Janelle Jacques will be there as well. Um, I think that's about it. But I know there's quite a few more names I didn't mention that they're there. There's some surprise guests as well. Be cool. there or be square. I guess I'll be square because I'll be going to Origins. <laughs> yes, the to- the place where Pokemon breeds. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, was it uh, June 11th or yeah, 11th through the 15th? So I'll be there, and I guess uh, Chad, you said some representatives from Dead Game Society will be down there as well. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, at Origins, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it to Origins this year, but I do know that uh, Michael and Colin uh, of the Day Game Society will be there. Cool. So that'll Most be cool. Excellent. We'll have to get a we'll have to get a game going on there, and I'll I'll be there with. Uh, yep, my daughter will be coming along with me. She'll so she's really excited about it, and uh, a few other friends. So looking forward to going to Origins once again. Yep, and I'll be oh, making yeah. an appearance there as well at some point during the weekend, so good times. Yeah, and don't forget also that uh, here coming up in, uh, what is it, in 52 days, uh, June 19th through the 22nd, is the Nexus Game Fair, and they will be having special guests that include uh frank menser uh tim kask uh actually you know what i'm not sure frank menser uh i do okay i do know 
Tim Cask, uh, Jolly Blackburn, Mike Carr, uh, Zeb Cook, uh, and uh, Merle Rasmussen, uh, top secret creator, will be there. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. So that's and that's in the really Chicago cool. area. Uh, actually, that's going to be in Milwaukee. Oh, Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. And uh, now you can already go to their website and see the event listings, which uh, I have several already up over there, including my Gangbusters game, uh, which I'll be running over there. And I'm doing a uh, a fifth edition Call of Cthulhu Dreamlands adventure, based adventure. Yeah, that should be kind of neat. And then also uh, something to keep on your radar uh, further along uh, towards the end of the year, but... uh, uh, is the Game Hole Convention in Madison, Wisconsin, which events uh, can now be submitted to that one. Uh, and it takes place uh, November 7th to 9th. And Ed Greenwood will be on that, uh, will be at that one. Uh, so oh, cool. you can see the man behind Elminster himself. Uh, and like I said, they are now accepting event uh, registration. So those oh, are very to cool. keep on your radar. Yeah. Very cool. You don't sound too enthused there. Nick. I oh, think it's going to be awesome. Like, no, it sounds really cool. Oh, okay. I thought you were eh. No, it's yeah, like, I'm real I'm just thinking of other conventions that. going on, too. It's like, well, well, August, obviously, you got Gen Con. I don't know who the special guests are uh, for Gen Con this year. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, Alex Kamer, who runs GameHole.com, uh, Game. <laughs> I always say that game hole con. Uh, I was actually just talking to him the other day, uh, and uh, you know he's going to be at the North North Texas convention, uh, I believe, because uh, he was he was asking whether or not uh, some of us would be over there, and uh, you know I mentioned you'd probably be there, Vince. Yeah, definitely. If he wants to come hang yeah. out, yeah, I tell you, you, gotta, you gotta find him. That he's North a great Texas- guy. That North Texas RPG Con's uh, becoming quite the uh, event now. It seems mm. it's really picked up some steam the past few years. I uh, yeah, you just uh, we'll have to hook up offline and, and chat and see if we can ha- meet up with him and just chat a little bit. Oh, definitely. It's like this one local con over here, Con on the Cob, that happens in mid October. Oh, that's it's a fun one. I've been to that one. Yeah, you know, that started off as a little con, I think, like maybe five years ago. And now they're, they've are they been getting some major uh, uh, special uh, guests. And uh, I've, been, <laughs> I've been wanting to go to it. <laughs> and it's literally like right down the road for me. And hopefully I will make it this year. So I really want to go to Con on the Cob. That'd yeah, Con on the Cob is a great, I mean, it's a fun atmosphere at that convention. Yeah, I understand it's a great local convention it's it's not too big it's got a nice little small convention vibe to it from what i hear and everybody from what i understand has a great time i know the folks from kenzer and company go there i know larry elmore goes every year uh he shows up he's one of their special guests so um yeah i'm gonna try to go if you're and if you're going chat i'll definitely be there man I don't we'll know if I'm going to we'll be that one this year. Uh, we'll we got to, man. <laughs> if I can. If I can. <laughs> you can crash at my place. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. We'll have to it's see. It's in Hudson. I live in Aurora. It's like right next door to me. Actually, so. <laughs> my, my, I, my parents are uh, – uh, my, my whole family, in fact, is right over there in, uh, around Unionville. I, th- I think it's Unionville, Hartville and Uniontown. 
Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, they're right gotcha. there, you know, next to Akron. So they're they're oh, literally okay. like an hour away from yeah, uh, not- from where uh, Con the Cobb's held. Yeah, it's like twenty minutes down the road from me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so see if you can. That'd be awesome. So we'll do. All, all convention information for you folks. Cool. Sounds like lots of fun. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Nick. What have you been up to for gaming wise? Um, actually, started the new campaign with the. Uh, I was talking about using Castle Mad Archmage, and uh, I also used the World of Greyhawk uh, box set along with a few other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also used the City of Greyhawk Second Edition <gasps> thing. Yeah, you know what? I used it, and I got, I got something interesting to say about it. I've I've had it for years, mm-hmm. and I've finally in the past few weeks did a thorough read through from it uh through it and i got the impression that this was originally it was originally created for first edition it might have been in left and it was kind of on the cusp because it came out copyrights 1989 Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering as i read through it i really got a first edition vibe from it just how it read and the layout of it so it was it was like on those twilight years, I think on first edition, but they, when second edition came out, they converted a few things over. So it's, I actually thought it's a pretty good box, at least a, as a basis for the city. So yeah, we did a, like a session zero where everybody did their character creation and um, it's very interesting party makeup. We got two Rangers. There's a barbarian. We got a cavalier, I think. No, wait. Sorry, a paladin who's on the run from the from the great kingdom because that's where he's from. (laughs) Lawful good paladin. If you know World of Greyhawk, you know, the the great kingdom's like the evil empire. So, oh, yeah, the great kingdom's awesome. I always I always attribute it to uh, it kind of like, you know, like the French empire, I guess you would say it's an analog to. You know, I, I, I always looked at Furiandi as kind of like the British Empire and the Great mm-hmm. Kingdom. As yeah. kind of like I always, you know. I, I said to everybody, like, like the Great Kingdom's like the the Empire in Star Wars in a way. <laughs> so exactly, yeah. So, um, so we had another character, the one who's playing a barbarian. He's from the Great Kingdom too. So I said, well, you're probably on the northern regions of the Great Kingdom, and this paladin. Uh, is on the run, and he booked passage on your Viking ship to come all the way around to the Greyhawk. So I had that going on. It, had the, it was really cool trying to figure out how everybody kind of met up in Greyhawk. And uh, so they they met up in the city. They <laughs> It was just interesting to try and get everybody inside the city because everybody having to pay a, a tax and a neat little note about using that box set for City of Greyhawk. All weapons, unless you're hired by somebody as a mercenary inside the city, all weapons except for daggers, clubs, staves, and slings, they're all peace bonded. Hmm. So they're like, what do you mean we got to peace bond all of our weapons? I told them how it was all done and everything. And basically I came up with an idea of like they would have to take their weapons, they put them in a 
and at the gate they put him in like a sack or something and the sack is sealed with a wax seal from the city of Greyhawk so it's I know they could probably get ways around it but you know we I did that actually in a campaign one time and I think you mm-hmm. gave me that idea from what you're talking about in the past mm-hmm. you've mentioned that before I had my players peace bond their weapon or what, how did you call it yeah peace bond what they did was they had to put all the weapons in their sheath or hilt, and then they would get a string tied around it with a wax mm-hmm. seal on the string. That right. Only uh, you can only access it through the guard the, at the gate with the guards. So, mm-hmm. so you can steal it and use it, but you have to go right it. Um, there. You could do that at the in the city. I also there's um if you're hired by a certain guild and you're given. If you're hired by a certain guild, and I forget which one which one is, there's a there's a guild in the city of Greyhawk where you could be basically hired out as a, a personal guard or uh, of that nature, and so they were able to to go to the uh, to those uh, people. Some of them got hired out to do that, and they were able to sign a paper, and they kept and there was like a bottom part of it where they ripped off and they kept that with it, and they. They didn't have to have their weapons peace bonded. So, but going through that whole process, it was really cool. There was a lot of role playing involved, which was really fun. Ooh. And then they got to go through the first uh, little bit of the first level of Castle Greyhawk, just a few areas, and they came back with some loot. But it was it was really cool. Everybody said they had a really fun time, which I was really scared about because I'm kind of running this campaign. Um, really loosey goosey. <laughs> I'm not doing a whole lot of prep. I'm kind of like running it on the fly, just some real basic stuff. It's really sandbox ring, which is um, kind of out of my comfort zone. I wanted to get, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to try to see if I could do it that way as kind of a sandbox campaign. It's like, there's the city. Here's a dungeon you can go to from time to time. Let's see what happens. Let's see where your noses take you. I'll probably throw some seeds of some stuff of, for, uh, you know, you know, some plot hooks maybe here and there if they want to do something, if they're kind of stuck on something. But for the most part, I'm going to see what kind of trouble they can cause on their own. <laughs> so other than that, I'm I'm really pleased with it. They seem to be having a really good time. So that's what's been going Very on. Very cool. That sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun. Uh, I was so worried, though, that first session. I'm like, oh, I don't I have no idea how this is going to work. Can I really do this on the fly? And I, I was really surprised at myself. I'm like, damn. <laughs> I could do this. <laughs> well, I like any kind of adventure where you make the players have to stretch and, and adapt to a situation. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like adventures where they just, you know, things all work in their favor, you know, as the way they expect it to be. I think they should they, you know, I think they need to learn how to adapt to the situation. And, right. and if they're in a situation where they, they enter a city and their weapons, like you were saying, are peace bound. You yeah. know, uh, they they may be like, "Hey, wait a minute! How are we going to function like this as a DM?" Exactly. That's when you look at them and say, "I don't know. How are you going to do that?" And they did find a way around it by going to that guild to get hired off as being guards or or what have you. So, um, yeah, it's been really good, and we'll see what will transpire in the future. But um, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Next couple of weeks, we'll have our next session. Mm-hmm. So, Ruby, yeah, we shall see. What about you, Vince? What's been going on with you? I got my game going up, or my bi-weekly game going up and running. Uh, we've been um, 
just started the characters I started off at second level because I only have four players and I want uh, to give everybody a fighting chance. Hmm. Um, Makes sense. I do have one character that multi-classed, so eh. I didn't really. I don't really like multi-class characters, but uh, you know, he he went with the whole multi-class thing. I said, you know, whatever, just let someone have fun for once. Yeah, you know, and and for only four characters in the party, you almost have to go that route just to give a little bit of that the, the party a, a fighting chance, I guess. Exactly. And that, that we ran, I ran one of the one-page dungeon um, contest winners from 2013. Oh, cool. Was, and it was a, when they had to go down into this old uh, crypt where their chieftain was buried, mm-hmm. figure out what evil was uh, making the trees and all the uh, plants turn black, and they had to defeat the little ghoul and his little minions down there, so... Cool. So it's pretty simple and it was fun, and I'm not doing any epic quest adventures. I just told him this is a sandboxy and just day to day. It's called life. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? I've, I've been doing things like that for a while, so I like doing it. I don't like. I, I mean, epic campaigns was something different for me. I never really mm-hmm. did that in the past. So it was. I just mostly do life. Life campaigns work out better for me because then I don't have to like stress over the whole major arc line of the plot and everything. Mm-hmm. And you could concentrate on other things. Exactly. Like, Yeah, I, I did something that I thought I would never do. What's that? Like for World of Greyhawk. I, I'm concentrating on some other details I never thought I'd do, like the weather. <laughs> I'm like, I never worried about the weather before, but you know what? It's like, I'm going to find, I'm going to try to do it by the book in the, 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 you know, the 83 box set has the weather generation. I'm like, oh my God, this will take me forever. Then I found online someone has a weather generator yeah. for World of Greyhawk. And I'll see if I can put in the show notes afterwards a link to that. It's awesome. You can outline like for months and months and months what the weather it is for a particular area, wherever you are in World of Greyhawk setting. So like, I got the whole year planned of what the weather's going to be like. So, they didn't, yeah, it was kinda, didn't somebody mention that weather generator uh, last week? We, I, I know we talked about weather in the in yeah. the last episode. I did. That was I mentioned. There was some Greyhawk site that was using. I couldn't find the link. Now Nick did. Oh, that's yeah, nice. I think I found it. I want one for Dragonlance too. Oh no, kidding! That, yeah. I said I wonder if there's one for Dragon. Uh, there was one oh, that, for Dragonlance. Uh, I didn't. Isn't there one that for Dragonlance that does the phases of the moon? Yeah, but I'm more, more like weather I was looking for. Probably, but who knows? Anyway. There, I put the link up. Groovy. Chad, what have you been doing? Well, uh, actually, you know, I'm still doing that play-by-post game in Search of the Unknown, B1, uh, ever since we ran that one uh, episode on play-by-post. Uh, there was such a popular, you know, uh, reaction to it that we decided, some of the people who listened to our show, uh, I decided to run a game by play-by-post for them. So, you know, uh, shout-outs again to uh, all the guys, you know, Doc Mind Wipe, uh, all you guys out there. Uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, they're, they're doing B1 right now. Uh, and, uh, they're still fighting the wolves, uh, but they're, they're, uh, you know, it's, it's coming to the final, uh, bit of the battle. Now they're in round six, I believe. Uh, and you know, they, they, 
they built they they basically you know uh, took took the high ground on the top of this hill and built big bonfires and the wolves were all circling and trying to get in and and spells been cast and one player's already kind of fallen uh and but it's you know it's 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 been pretty fun you know they, they, they at first they were trying to outrun the wolves and then they realized it was going to be dark soon so then they had to make a final stand and and this is all on their way to the actual adventure itself uh <laughs> and and I do run weather in my games uh so anytime you're outside weather does become a factor if I'm mm-hmm. running the game so they were actually moving through these uh, through these very uh, rugged, this really rugged landscape, and it was uh, it was like a blizzard going on at the time. So they're, you know, they're they're trying to trudge through these real craggy hills, and and, and it's snowing really hard, and, and they're lost because their mm-hmm. guide, who was the NPC, uh, had no idea where he was going, and it was a whiteout, and they could hear the wolves howling as they were getting closer and closer, and so, you know, just building the tenseness of the scene up, uh, but, uh, yeah, we're having a really good time with that. Cool. Yeah, yeah, really, really enjoying that, so Longfoot, Doc Mindwipe, uh, 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 why am I always, uh, uh, Dave the Moderate, <laughs> Uh, Kaz, uh, uh, <laughs> Cinnabar. Uh, so if I missed you, you, you know, uh, I've already told them that I, I have a bad memory. <laughs> That's Matt just found the weather generator for Dragonlance and it is amazing what they did. Yes. It's, wow. it's more like if you went to weather.com and typed in Dragonlance. Yeah. Oh my, wow, that's cool. Yeah. He put, wow. That is cool. It is really cool looking. You guys have to check it out too. We'll put that in the show notes just in case anyone's interested. That yep. we have quite a few Dragonlance fans out there. Yep. That's a good one to keep. Really cool. The Nexus. I love that website. I didn't even think it would be there. Yeah. Yeah. It w- it wasn't linked off the if you went under the ref. Yeah. yeah. Actually. Yeah. There are other generators like the Moon Tracker and whatnot. It's not under that. It's actually just under its own tab. Weather. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Five-day forecast. Your five-day forecast for Silva Nanos weather. Yes. Today Ice we have showers. sunny, 40 degrees. Yes. Sunrise will be at 5.41 a.m. Winds at t- coming out of the west at 12 miles an hour at a 280-degree angle. Precipitation percent chance 20. Yeah, you can do a full weather cast. They have, the, they have the weather cast up until 2019, it looks like. Wow. Yeah. Which, With a 30% chance of error elementals. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Someone needs to do on YouTube Cooler just the, the daily Dragonlance weather report. It needs oh, my to, God. It needs to happen. Hmm. It's got to be a girl in a chainmail bikini that does it, though. Well, oh, that'd be cool. Fine. That'd be a cute weather girl. We have to nominate someone's wife. Nick, your wife. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Chad, your wife. I don't think she'd do it. Uh, mine wouldn't either, so. And I'm not married, so. All right, so we can hire Matt a stri- Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyways. Moving right along. Yeah, so Matt, what about- are you doing game-wise? <laughs> game-wise, after our my little cabin board gaming getaway, uh, my 
weekly RPG groups taking like the next three weeks off. So I've been spending my time playing Magic the Gathering and yeah, going broke in the process. The joys of yeah. playing Magic. Uh... I did a pre-release for the new Magic set, Journey to Nyx, that's coming out next week, uh, this past Friday. After spent and spent like twelve hours playing Magic at a game store from like seven p.m. to six thirty ish a.m. At the store? Yeah, they did them because they had their normal Friday night Magic tournament, which was like five rounds, so that's about five hours. And then at midnight, they had is when they were allowed to do the pre-release tournament for the new set coming out. So that started at midnight and it was another six-hour tournament. Jeez! Oh my God! Yeah, I was exhausted come Saturday. By Moradin's hammer, what what are you doing? I well. I should have dropped earlier from that midnight release tournament, but my record was good enough. If the uh, gods were cooperative and the tiebreakers fell the right way, I could actually place and win prizes. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, there's prizes. Unfortunately, it paid out top eight. Top eight gets stuff. I was Uh ninth at the Uh end of it. I won my last game. It's like the NFL playoffs where you need to win your last game, but you need someone to lose to. Yeah. Didn't quite work Uh, out. So I got ninth. And I'm like, I could have left like five hours ago if I would. So you slept the whole next day. Yeah. I slept till about three in the afternoon. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's how I've been spending my time Doing marathon gaming sessions of Magic the See Gathering. What Magic the Gathering does to your brain? Yes. <laughs> evil. And we won't it's even evil. mention what it does to your pocketbook. Oh God, yes. Wow. Magic the arms races, I used to call it. Yes, it is. Hey, there's a new set out. The old one now sucks, and you can't use it anymore. Buy this one. Good job. They're a little better about that. The new sets will be good for about two years in the standard format. Then they have their modern format, which really doesn't change all that much, and you can use cards going back like 10, 12 years. But in that, it's pretty much an arms race that unless you're willing to – I think the average deck for modern is about $1,500 in cards. God. Yeah. Um, I have a friend. There's and then there's the really crazy formats like Legacy and Vintage. Uh, my friend has a uh, vintage deck that's of approximate retail value around seven grand. Oh wow! wow. So yeah, it's a good experience. yeah. I it, used to play that game online. I had an Arc Bound deck. Yeah, yeah. I also do online as well. Um, but I do, fortunately the online cards are far cheaper if you buy them <laughs> secondary. Yeah, of course. And then, anyway. Anyways, and this is not Magic the Gathering cast, even though it is currently owned by the same people that own our beloved Dungeons & Dragons. No, 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 no. We are no, talking about... They don't own our Dungeons & Dungeons Dragons. They own a facsimile thereof Dungeons & Dragons. They own yes. the intellectual property of our beloved version of Dungeons & Dragons. Intellectual property that they're destroying! No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they destroyed it, and now they're trying to put it back together with some super glue. And that's a whole other show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> get to actually talk about that stuff on a podcast with Crispy that, you know, made people vomit. So, yes. All right. So let's head into our first segment. And I just want to start off by saying before we go into the segment, this whole next couple of segments is based off of just the core books from AD&D. Nothing else. Nothing like on Arthur Canna or anything like that. 
So just keep that in mind while we're playing. We're not using anything but core books. Okay, so let's head into table manners. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. Okay, here we go into table manners, and what we're going to go in with our theme of like a beginner's guide to first edition AD&D, uh, we're going to do character creation. And like Vince said, uh, we're going to go pretty much by the book uh, as much as we can. And we'll, and we'll talk about like different variants thereof along the way. But uh, what we're going to do in this segment, I'm going to talk about how to create a character for first edition AD&D and just give a quick overview of how that goes. And I'm primarily going to be using the player's handbook, but I will probably refer to the Dungeon Master's Guide for just certain things later on. Wait, one, one thing to step in here for the core yes. book that we're talking about is obviously the player's handbook, the original cover, the second cover printing, and the new Wizards of the Coast printing as well. Right. Along with uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the original printing, the second printing, mm-hmm. the new one by Wizard, uh, Wizards of the Coast, and finally, the we may uh, dip into the Monster Manual, mm-hmm. the original printing, second printing. Uh, was there a third printing? Yeah. And I I may refer to, for one thing, in character creation from Unearth Arcana, but just going to mention it. We're not going to actually use uh, the one method out of the book. If we do use a separate book, we'll just mention that on the side. Right. Yeah, I think it's probably easiest just to remember that when people say the core books, they're referring to the first edition player's handbook, first edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Mm-hmm. They're not referring to the Unearthed Arcana book. Yeah, Unearthed Arcana or Wilderness Survival Guide or whatever else, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So basically what you go through, just a quick overview of what we'll do as far as character creation is, I'm, I'm going to create a character right here on the show. <gasps> yeah. I have a character sheet and everything printed out and all that good stuff. Yeah. And I got my Mountain Dew as well. So there. Cheetos. <laughs> Woohoo. Mountain Dew throwback, by the way. What about Cheetos? So, no Cheetos, sorry. Is it Code Red Mountain Dew? No, it's Mountain Dew throwback. Oh, okay. The well, Code stuff. Red would, I don't know, that to me just That's kind of newish, man. Yeah. I'm throwing Throw- yeah. okay, the That throwback. is a good point. Throwback that, is casual. more authentic for the time period. Hell yeah. heck yeah. You're not you're correct feel the caffeine that. coursing through my veins. As well. Now, for me, if, Joel said it that, all. Joel okay. to second edition. Okay, tangent, reel it in. <laughs> Joining the Soda and Energy Drink Podcast. Now let's go back to the podcast by Nick. Go, yes. Nick. Anyway, so first thing you'll do is create, uh, roll up your character abilities, and there's different methods that you can do for that, and that is under agreement from your dungeon master when you first do this. There are. Why, what are those methods, Nick? Well, very interesting. There's the normal method of using three six-sided dice. Which can be found on page... Um, And that's generally... Yeah. Page 11 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Page 11 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. There's also method one, which is... All scores are recorded and arranged in the order the player desires. Four D6 are rolled, and the lowest die is discarded. You also have method two. That's all scores are recorded and arranged as in method one. 
but three six-sided dice are rolled 12 times and the highest six scores are retained. Then you have method three, which is scores are rolled are according to each ability category in order, and that's strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, and charisma. 3d6 are rolled six times for each ability, and the highest scores in each category is retained for that category. And then method four is 3d6 are rolled sufficient times to generate the six ability scores in order for 12 characters. The player then selects the single set of scores which he or she finds most desirable, and these scores are noted on the uh, record sheet. And there's another fifth method, and that's out of Unearth Arcana, but that's that's one that we're not going to use. That's if you were just going to create a character that was uh, is racist human. But I think we uh, talked before the show, and we're going to do method one, mm-hmm. which is 4d6, discard the lowest, and arrange as desired. Is that agreeable? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, Chad is our, 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 our official unofficial DM for next segment. So Chad, that question, Chad. Chad. Well, you know what? I concur. I am allowing this. You concur. I concur, sir. So after, so I will generate character abilities. And again, those abilities are strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, and charisma. And strength being how strong you are. Intelligence is how smart. Wisdom is like street smarts, how wise you are, the world. Dexterity is how agile, how quick you are. Constitution is basically healthy, and charisma is a combination of, I would say, internal and external beauty and looks, right? Yeah, and it's also how you come across to people. Yeah, yeah how you come across uh, to people. Are yeah, you Notice people? we're not using comeliness. comeliness. That came out we're in not. Unearthed Arcana, which we are not using as it's not one it of the... It came out World of Greyhawk box set. Oh, did it really? Yes, it did. I did not know that. Yes. Don't I actually have that box set, and I refer to it quite oh, I'll have to take anyway, a look at that. Moving along. So we'll do the ability scores. Then after that, you choose what race that you want to be. Either human, dwarf, elf, half-orc, halfling, or half-elf. And we'll go through those in a little bit. And then you'll choose your class based on your ability scores. And that could be, you know, a cleric, fighter, a magic user, or a thief. And there are various subclasses thereof. Subclass of cleric is the druid. Subclasses of fighter are the ranger and paladin. Subclass of magic user is the illusionist. And the subclass to thief is the assassin. So DMG page 11, use the dice rolling methods that we talked about. And for just uh, sake of time... I already generated some ability scores for my character. He's got a strength of 13, intelligence of 17, wisdom of 14, a dex of 14, constitution of 15, and a charisma of 10. So those were my ability scores, and I filled out all the different special things to the right on my character sheet of that pertain to what ability score, what you get with it. Like, for for example, intelligence, your additional languages, chance no spell, and and so on. So I put in those uh, information, and that information is on in your PHB, your player's handbook, from pages 9 to... 13. 13. Yep, 9 to 13. 
I'll put them all in chat so you can just quickly reference them. Yep. So they're all on my character sheet. And looking at what I want to do as far as race, which is next, and that's pages 15 through 17. And like I said, the different races, you got human, dwarf, elf, half-orc, halfling, and half-elf. And each of those races, they have pluses and minuses to them as far as what they can and cannot do, like additional languages, uh, maybe an increase in ability scores, things of that nature. And there is, those are under each description of your different races. Uh, and for me, I just said, you know what, I'm just going to keep it easy, simple, and I'm going to be a human. <laughs> so I'm going to be a human, and I think because my highest ability score is 17... I'm going to play a magic user, which is going on to the next section is choose your class. Choosing our choosing our class. So I went through the PHB for all my for my race human. There's no any special there's no special modifiers for humans. And then if I chose a different race though, I would apply those ability modifiers to my ability scores. Yeah, and you bring up a good point there too, Nick, because you know, uh while you may get some pluses to your abilities by playing a demi human, humans are gonna give you your widest range of choices because while a human may not take may not benefit from any bonuses on their uh attributes, they also don't take any penalties and they can be any class they want to be. Mm-hmm. And unlimited in all classes too. While demi humans exactly. Yeah. Demi humans, there are level limits, but they have other advantages like later on what is known as multi-classing. And also they get, you know, other abilities, maybe infravision, chances of finding secret doors, depending on what race you choose. So mm-hmm. there's some trade-offs and it just really depends on what you want to play. So I just kept it simple. I was going to play human and I think I'm going to play a magic user. And that goes on to page 19 of your player's handbook. Excellent. I like it. Or page 18, excuse me. But then pages, I always like magic users. Yeah. Pages 18 to 32 in your player's handbook is all your different character classes. And like I said, all the, the what we I like to call the core four classes. Your cleric, fighter, magic user, and thief. Paladin's also there. And assassin's yeah. also there. Paladins, Assassins, monk. Illusionist, Druid, yep, Ranger, monk. which are your subclasses, and then the Monk class, which is kind of unique in its own way. But looking at what I have for ability scores, I think I'm going to play a Magic user. Okay. So after you choose your class, then we have to go and figure out what our alignment is and for everybody, alignment is kind of your character's worldview of things. So I have a human magic user, and alignment, going past all the different things about classes, that's on page 33 of the player's handbook. And there's a brief paragraph on each different types of alignments. And the alignment is basically a it's a law, chaos good evil diametric that's going on if i think i use the term, the the uh relationship i should say mm-hmm. and 
and the best way to describe it is I believe that there is a chart actually way in the back in the appendix of the player's handbook. There is a chart that align that talks about the um, al- how the alignment system works. There's a nice graph, and that's in on page 119, 119 of your player's handbook. If you want to use that as a nice reference to the how the alignments are going, you have straight neutral, and then you have basically eight other different alignments that kind of ring around that. And you just look at your the, the descriptions of each one and see what you think would be best to play. Now, going along with that, a DM might say that there might be uh, restrictions on certain alignments as far as what he might want to have or have not in play. And also there's restrictions on alignment with, depending on your class. For example, paladins. They can only be lawful good. That's based off being being that class is a restriction. I believe assassins have to be evil, if I if I remember correctly. Yes, that is correct. So, there are some, um, and druids have to be neutral if you're going to play a druid. Unless the DM decides differently. And- Unless the DM decides differently. That's true. So, I'm looking through the alignment system, and, you know, I think I'm going to pick neutral good. So, okay. I'm going to play a neutral good human magic user. Okay. All right, so that's the alignment system. And that's, again, on page 34 of the Player's Handbook. And you can also use the, was it, Appendix 3, page 119 for that chart. That helps a lot. All right, we also some people see that. Kinda, cause some, some people get kind of confused on alignment on, you know, just how it works. So it's a good picture representation when it's about. Yeah, you, you can actually find that exact same uh, uh, diagram in the uh, Holmes edition of basic D&D too. Oh wow. Just a little bit of a trivia there. So I got my alignment. Now I got to do hit points, which I almost forgot to do. And usually you can normally you're supposed to roll for hit points. That is true, but in this one as a DM, as your uh, as your DM for this one, I'm going to house rule and say being that you guys are all first level, I'm just going to say take max hit points and then apply any bonuses to hit points based on constitution that apply or mm-hmm. penalties that apply. So, yeah, like uh, like what uh, Chad said, he's one of those things as a DM, as you can see from first edition AD&D, he can you know, rule on some things. He can uh, say, hey, you know what, let's do max hit points for first level. Plus any constitutional bonus. Or, you know what, uh, druids, you can be neutral good, for example, instead of just straight neutral or something like that. So just kind of throwing those things in there as we're going through this to let you know. There are some things as a DM that, uh, you know, make it kind of his own. And that's one of the beauties of first edition AD&D. So exactly. As the DM, remember, this is your world, so Mm -hmm. the rules should fit around your philosophy of how your game world works. Mm -hmm. So luckily, I have five hit points. Yay! Because uh, magic users, they have a four-sided die for hit points, and you can imagine if you only had one hit point as a magic user, you want to just kind of back away from all sorts of nastiness that might come along in the adventure. So I did that. So I got my hit points. I chose my alignment. Now I got to do money and equipment. 
and I'm a pretty poor magic user. <laughs> I got 30 gold pieces. So, <laughs> so I was I bought some darts. And I have no armor because magic users are magic users are restricted in having they cannot use any sort of armor or shield. So I just have my robes or a cloak or what have you. My armor class would be, I guess, nine. Armor class nine. And I don't have any modifiers from dexterity. I'm not that high of dexterity, unfortunately. So I got that. I got some other equipment I bought. The standard fare for any sort of adventure, a backpack, 50 feet of rope. (laughs) But I can't get the 10-foot pole. (laughs) Because it's not in the chart. But, uh, you know, some torches uh, and a few other things. So, and those, the equipment guide, and also for money, it's on pages 35 and goes to 30, page 37, because it also talks about weapons and armor as well. So, weapons, armor, and standard equipment, and your money is all page 35 through 37 of your player's handbook. So, it's all kind of going in nice logical steps here on how we uh, how you uh, create your character so I got my equipment done and my money my measly 30 gold pieces <laughs> now I gotta do something a little bit extra because I'm a magic user now you need to get your spells yes now I gotta get my spells now if you go to page 39 of the DMG you will find out how you get your spells at first mm-hmm. level is a magic user. And that's your right. character, who have we given him a name yet? Um, no, not yet. I'll do okay. that. Okay. Well, we'll call him the cool question mark for right now. But Cool question mark. I like that. Yeah. But uh, the cool question mark's master was an unthinkably powerful wizard at sixth level. Oh, my goodness. Almost unheard of. And (laughs) he gave him, as a graduation uh, present, as soon as he became a journeyman, able to travel about on his own, a small spell book that held five spells. Nice. One of which automatically is always, for the question mark, and any other uh, character that is a beginning magic user, the spell Read Magic. Okay. Read Magic. Got it. Okay. Now, that's always going to be on a new Magic User's uh, spellbook list. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, they are going to get four more spells. Now, according to the book, and this is by the book. Now, different DMs, I've seen almost every DM does this differently, in fact. But by the book, it is four spells. And these are divided up uh into offensive spells, defensive spells and miscellaneous spells. Right. Okay? Uh now this is generally done uh selected randomly uh and it doesn't really in here tell you the random means. It just says then select by random means one spell from the offensive, defensive mm-hmm. and miscellaneous categories. 
okay, so actually, so that's one, two, three, four. Uh, choice is a note that uh, they can, uh, oh, okay, yeah. Now, you can uh, furthermore allow an extra defensive or miscellaneous spell. Therefore, the character would then begin with five spells. So, we're mm-hmm. going to say that you begin with Magic Missile as your offensive spell. Nice. Okay, very nice one. Uh, your defensive spell is going to be, uh, let's give you Affect Normal Fires. Affect Normal Fires. Yes. And your miscellaneous spell will be... How about Detect Magic? Oh, that would be helpful. (laughs) Very helpful for you. And then we'll give you one more offensive spell, and I'm going to give you sleep. Nice. Yeah. Now, just to let everybody know, these are the spells in my character's spell book. This doesn't mean I have all of these memorized. That's a total different thing. So these are spells that my... I, the the wizard who I was apprenticed to gave me in my spell book. Now, as far as what number of spells I can memorize, that's dependent on the level of my character. As a first-level magic user, I can memorize one spell right now at first level. And that's going back to the choosing my character class section, and that's on page 26 of the player's handbook, just for the the number of spells I can memorize per level. And I will say, hmm, I don't know which one I'm going to memorize yet. It's either Magic Missile or Sleep. (laughs) It's one of those two. So... While you're deciding, let me also say one more thing. Now, there is another character class in the Player's Handbook, a subclass of the Magic User, which is the Illusionist. Now, the Illusionist is a little bit different in how they gain their spells because, according to the book at least, uh, they, do not, they do not write their spells in magic runes. They use a secret language. Therefore, they do not need the read magic spell. Therefore, they do not get that automatically. So that's just something to remember. Yeah. And also, there are two spells you cannot have in your spell book at the start of the game. Ah, good point, Matt. What are those? Nistel's Magic Aura and Tensor's Floating Disc. They must be located by the character during the course of the adventure, so you can never start with those, because Nistel and Tensor were probably not your master magic user. They So, you didn't learn it from them directly, so you gotta find their notes. Those are spells you gotta find. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, in my campaign, uh, also, and uh, now, and, and when these books came out, obviously the Unearthed Arcana hadn't been out there yet. Uh, but uh, when the Unearthed Arcana came out, and if you do happen to use that in your game, uh, then they did introduce the idea of cantrips, and cantrips are a, are an even more minor form of spell than first level spells, but they can be very useful. And I believe yeah. it's like four or five of them equal yeah, one like first level spell. Clean. Yeah, <laughs> like Firefinger or Firefinger. They're, they're, they're like little parlor tricks. Exactly. But, uh, just kind of keep them with the, the core books. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go with right. The but I just wanted to make mention spells. of them. 
Uh, right. We're not going to be using them, obviously, for this uh, example, but they are out there. So just so you know that that's out mm-hmm. there if your DM chooses to use them. So I uh, got my spells, and I think I, I'm going to use Magic Missile as my memorized spell okay. for right now. Now I'm going to move on to after my money in and equipment. I chose my spell. I got my spell book, chose my spell. Now I'm going to go to uh, the player's uh, – no, I'm sorry, not player's handbook, but the Dungeon Master's Guide, page uh, 79. And I'm going to write down the saving throws for my character. And the saving throws are kind of an abstract way of saying you uh, – for a character to avoid a possible catastrophic event. And – each different class has different saving throws. Yeah, paralyzation, poison, or death magic. Yeah, petrification or polymorph, rod, staff, or wand, breath weapon, and spells. And I wrote down my uh, saving throws for the magic user. And my saving throw for paralyzation, poison, death magic is 14. Petrification, polymorph is 13. Rod, staff, 111. And so on and so on. So I wrote those down. <clears throat> so I got all those uh, down from my, my character. So, And that's, again, page 79 of the Dungeon Master's Guide for my saving throws. So after that, just a mention also in the Dungeon Master's Guide is your two-hit charts for all the different classes. And that's going to be pretty much on the DM side of things. Um, you won't, as, as, a, as a player, have that information for you. But just to let you know, on pages 74 and 75 in the Dungeon Master Guide are to, uh, to hit charts. And also, if you're playing a character class of Cleric, the uh, Turning Undead table is there as well. So, so I decided my spells. And another thing I'm going to do... And these are all optional, really, from right now. These help kind of flesh out the character. So we got all the basics down. Just quick run through. My ability scores, my race, my class, hit points. I did money and equipment, my alignment. And then I, because I'm a magic user, I got my spell book with some spells. Also, um, one of the other things i got to flesh out is languages. And uh, languages, they do tell you in the player's handbook on page 34, there are some common languages that, are, that would be known. Or you can roll them up randomly. Normally, and all characters know what's known as the common tongue. Now, as a dungeon master, you can go beyond that and have different languages from the different uh, character races like um, halfling, elf, um, gnome, uh, dwarf, and so on. But there's also a chart in the DMG for making up, uh, getting your uh, languages, excuse me, not making up your language, but getting languages, and that's on page 102 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. 
And there's also, uh, uh, if you, uh, many people don't use this, but if you want to, there's also alignment languages, uh, which are often misunderstood. It's generally, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain alignment languages. It's, 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 a it's a way of, uh, it's almost like a secret code language. That's, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's shared. a spoken. Yeah. I never understood. I always understood it as it's not a spoken thing. It's more of like gestures. Yeah, I've never really, I've never I, used it because I never really, have I. never really got it. And never never really. got into what's known as alignment tongues. They uh, often rec- refer to it as spoken. I don't know what it is exactly. Yeah. I never actually took the time to explain or written out. There probably is something listed somewhere in one of Gygax's posts from a long time ago saying exactly what it is, but I've never seen it. Yeah. yeah, and then one final one is thieves can't. If you're a thief, thieves there can't. is yes. a uh, secret language spoken by thieves. Yes, and I do use that in my game when I run it. There, thieves have their own special language of hand gestures or, or maybe short verbal things that they do. So mm-hmm. I just kept it simple, and um, I know six additional languages, and that's beyond knowing the common tongue. So I have common... Dwarvish, Elvish, Goblin, Halfling, Hobgoblin, and Orcish. But like I said, on page 102 of the of the Dungeon Master's Guide, there is a random language determination table, and you can ro- uh, roll those percentage, and you can you know you maybe know Gargoyle or Satyr or Black Dragon or something like that as well. And as a DM, feel free to limit languages that can be known. Like you mm-hmm. might say, it's impossible to know the language of the dragons. That's they don't share it, or or perhaps you want to expand the languages to say, you know, there's the common language of the land, but then then the humans, even amongst themselves, the people of the great, you know, maybe there's the language of the ancient Sul kingdom as opposed to the people of Furiandi have their own mm-hmm. dialect. So there yep. you go. So also going along that same uh, page of 102 is, and this is optional as well. Again, everything else right now is optional. It's kind of a, uh, just to help flesh out the character, the height, the weight, um, character age. Well, well, not care. I guess character age could sometimes be considered a optional thing. Mm, could be. So, but uh, let's start with age. And that's, and this again, this isn't a Dungeon Master's Guide. This is on page 12, is rolling the age of your character, and I am playing a human. And humans, uh, and I'm playing a magic user. So going on that chart for human table, magic user, it's a 24 plus two eight-sided dice, and I'm 39 years old, so I'm pretty old. And the reason being that is, I guess the logic behind it is being a magic user you're spending a lot of time studying and learning spells and how the magic of your of the world works. So it's a little more de- a little more demanding as far as age wise versus someone like a fighter, which is you start at 15 plus a D4. So you could start as uh, low as 16 years old or up to 19 as a fighter. So it's kind of interesting when you put things in perspective is like if you use this uh chart at least for the humans if you're playing a fighter or even a paladin or a ranger you're relatively young you're in your teens if not early 20s 
So non-humans could be a little different. Say if you were going to be a dwarven fighter, dwarves are longer lived. So a dwarven fighter would be base of 40 years plus five four-sided dice. Uh, elves too, a lot older age. If you're going to play elven fighter, you'd be starting of a base of 130 years plus five six-sided dice. And there's different variants depending on the class that you play. So that's also that's page twelve of the DMG. Or you could just make up a number if your DM says, "No, nah, don't worry about it. Just make up." Yeah, a number. exactly. The DM could say, "You know what? Just you know, whatever age. This is the age range for for elves. This is how long they live, and just pick an age range in there. Go for it." So. And it is kind of important to have that age in there because based on spells, especially if you're a magic user. Mm-hmm. Or if you use wish spells in your campaign, things like that. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Also, one of the things I like to use, kind of a little side note, is on page thirteen of the DMG, right over there on age categories. Uh, I use the age categories, and that can also add or subtract from ability scores. Yep. So I like using that. You know, for example, what if you like for my human character? Uh, he's 39 years old. He's considered mature. I would actually add a point to my strength and add a point to my wisdom. So there could be some benefits there. But what if I was actually 41? I'd be middle-aged. I'd subtract a point of strength and a point from constitution. But I would add a point of intelligence and another point of wisdom. So there are some benefits to that aging table on page 13 of the dungeon master's guide and then and then the last thing is you know height and weight and this is again an optional thing that you can do but there is a table like with everything else in first edition AD&D there's a table like where that languages are page 102 of your dungeon master's guide there's you can use the chart for height and weight from uh, for the different races and also depending on sex, either male or female. So normally this is used for non-player characters, but why not use it for PCs if you know, for player characters as well? And then after that, it's now just um, naming your character and some other little background stuff, and that's pretty much it. And you are, as a player, ready to jump into Chad's game and play? Yeah, and... How long did that really take us? Uh, about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes. 15, 20 minutes? Mm-hmm. It's a piece of cake to create a character in, D- uh, in D&D. Once in you get it done, edition. you can get it done in maybe like five minutes. Yeah, and this is actually a little bit longer because I had a magic user. And we had to explain every little option. Right. So, but, I mean, if you're right. used to playing and you're playing after a while, you'll be able to create a character like that. Snap yeah, character. half the time, <laughs> you know? Probably most of it's just like coming up with character background. So I don't know. What's the name of my character? Um, I'm going to name him Bosco. Bosco. Okay. Bosco the wizard. And um, I don't know. He's 39 years old. He's six feet tall. He's kind of a, I would say he weighs 145 pounds. He's kind of a gangly fellow. Okay. So. Your character's done now? Yeah, I'm all set. Oh, yeah, and armor class. 
I think uh, I mentioned that. That, that usually falls under the money equipment area. So yeah, I think I did mention that my armor class is nine, <laughs> which is not good. <laughs> I'll stay right in the because magic users obviously they well uh, they can't wear armor. It right. inhibits their spell casting, so their armor class is not going to be very good. Right. Did you do the uh, two hit chart as well, or no? Yeah, I mentioned the two hit chart where it's at in the dungeon master's guide. Okay, perfect. So, right, so Nick. Rolled up a standard magic user class. Now I rolled up another class for our next segment. We all have to have characters. So for our for my character, I rolled up. I thought a little bit outside the box instead of a standard character. And I, I consulted with Chad on the side, paid him some money, and he allowed me to roll. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously you just get with your DM, and if you have a great idea, ninety nine percent of the time a DM will say, "Hey, that's a cool idea. Let's try it." Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, you know, you get rid of it. Right. This is when you need to work with your your DM and, you know, you need to go to him and be willing to work with him. You can't just go to him and say, I have this idea. And then he says, "Okay, well, why don't we do this? And you get mad and storm out of the room. That doesn't work. It's got to be a two way street and and vice versa. The DM should try to work with you also. Uh, So if the idea has merit and both sides are willing to come to a compromise then why not? So I went with Chad, and I decided I wanted to make up a cleric of Poseidon. I took out the deities and demigods handbook or the Legends and Lore handbook. I shouldn't say handbook, just book, which has all the listings of all the gods that you can possibly use. So I decided my cleric's god was going to be Poseidon, and I rolled up stats for him of 15 for strength and 10 intelligence, a wisdom of 18, a dexterity of 14, constitution of 14, and charisma of 9. It's not pretty, but, you know. Hey, he's average. That's average. Nine, 12 average. And remember, charisma is more than just how you look. It's also how you come across. So uh, with a charisma nine, uh, you know, he maybe. He might be a bit abrasive. He maybe he's more of a fire and brimstone uh, priest. Uh, yeah, you know, and, it goes and, with it because he's from the uh, the Greek pantheon. So maybe he's a little more abrupt about things. Right. Maybe his uh, elders sent him on the road per se, as opposed to appointing him to a specific temple because they wanted him to learn a little bit of levity or you know to gain in that area. Yeah. You never know. So he's about uh, 27 years old. He's five foot nine, 206 pounds. Uh, he's wearing ringmail armor. And the one thing that I spoke to Chad with on the side and gave him a couple hundred dollars. No, I'm kidding. I gave, <laughs> I gave him I, a few electrum pieces. Yeah. I asked him if since he was a cleric of Poseidon, would it be okay if he dropped one of his weapon proficiencies and picked up the trident? Because he's a worshiper of Poseidon. And Poseidon's basic mark is a trident and then chad thought long and hard and slept and decided not to sleep and then came back to an idea and he said it was okay mm-hmm. well actually first after sleeping long and hard i forgot the question but then after he reminded me <laughs> i said oh yeah sure yeah no problem yeah. <laughs> he pretended he forgot and uh yeah so i picked up the trident which you can find in the player's handbook it actually does uh basically 1d6 plus one damage to small and medium and then it does three to twelve for large no nasty against large. Yeah, beasts. I mean it's a it's a, it's pretty much a two-handed weapon, or it can be used as one-handed uh, if you're strong enough. But mm-hmm. it's just something different. I wanted to try, and it was outside of the box. 
Right. Now, a lot of people who are experienced in AD&D, D&D, are probably right now screaming at the computer going, but it's a piercing weapon. Okay. But as we were saying, this is one of those instances where a DM is allowed a house rule. And my logic behind this was to say that a cleric in my game is going to be allowed to break that rule so long as the piercing weapon is also the weapon of their chosen deity. Right. So we followed along with the chosen deity and that was allowed in Chad's game. It may not be allowed in your game and you may say, no, never, and go with the pure clerk. That's fine. But Mm -hmm. just optional little things you can do for character creation to help make your players a little happier or maybe a fun little idea to throw in the campaign. Who knows? Right. And I think this brings up a really good point, how the beauty of the first edition AD&D system is like, I like to call it, it's modular. Mm -hmm. You can add things, you can take things away, and overall, the system still works. It's not broken, which is great. So for my um, secondary uh, skill, I decided he was a sailor, and then Chad and I came up with this background of how he said he was sent out to learn more. And it would make sense for a Poseidon character to be a sailor because Poseidon is king of the sea. So put two and two together. Yeah, he's a sailor. Perfect. Okay. We decided that his the spells he's going to have is bless, command, and cure light wounds for his three clerical spells at first level. Chad decided eight. Uh, max hit points at first level, so mine would be eight. He's a chaotic good alignment. His armor class is a six with his shield if he uses it, or a seven without a shield. Mm-hmm. I think that's about it. I need to say, yeah. And he has his turn dead on ability, uh, turn dead ability, which he uses. He's carrying a bunch of standard equipment on him: holy symbol, backpack, water skin, cloak, rations. Leather boots, bedroll, shield, of course, his iron spikes, torch, lantern, oil flask, and maybe a mirror just in case, can, you know, he could fix his hair. Okay. <laughs> and that's basically that chart. Oh, and the language is I, I randomly rolled on the chart that Nick was pointing to before, and I got common. Obviously, that's standard. Chaotic good, and then I got orcish and hill giant as my other languages. Cool. And, uh, you yeah, know, no, actually, I got ogreish. I read it wrong. Oh, ogreish. So you can speak ogre. Yes, and that's my character that's going to be for the next segment. Now we're going to head over to Matt, who made up his character before the show. Yes, I made a halfling thief. So basically it's what happens when you leave the Shire and get exiled because you're just trying to steal the precious. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, he was a frail fellow with a mere strength of six. His intelligence, 14, wisdom, 14, and you're going to see a reoccurring theme here shortly. My dex was 16, my constitution, 14, and charisma, 14. Wow. Yeah, a lot of 14s. It was a little ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, He's age 31, so in the world of halflings, he's still a young adult. Uh, Two feet, six inches, 55 pounds. Got a little bit of a belly on him. Went... Traveled to, I believe we're all out of the village of Hamlet for this scenario. So mm-hmm. he got his, once leaving the Shire for trying to steal the precious from his uh, cousin's uncle, uh, Bilbo, for his name is Fildo Baggins. Uh, he got a job at the stables since he knows a, a thing or two about animal husbandry. Uh, Equipment wise, he's got his thieves' tool, dagger, leather armor, since 
that's really the max you want as a thief, because anything else will actually hurt your thieving skills. So, he's also chaotic neutral, since all thieves either have to be evil or neutral. So, I just decided to just make him a little nutty and be chaotic neutral. <laughs> oh, great. Yes. <laughs> right. Now, keep in mind, uh, it, when you if you do take chaotic neutral, you probably first want to just talk to your DM to make sure he allows that, because some DMs don't allow that one. And two... Uh, you want to talk to your DM because you need to make sure you understand how he interprets chaotic neutral because so many people out there, and this is why so many people don't allow chaotic neutrals, think that it just means you're psychotic and will attack your own party members at the drop of a dime as right. well as anybody else. And the way I look at it is not so much that way. I, no. I look at it that, you know, you don't have to be psychotic to be chaotic neutral. It just means that you look at the world as completely you like the world uh you like to see the world as random you don't see mm -hmm. order in the world right. uh and you don't think that there is such a thing as good and evil uh but that doesn't mean that you feel you need to go out and and you know uh kill puppies it just means that the world is what you make of it right know? chaotic uh, neutral does mm -hmm. not equal mental illness exactly it, it's, but it could <laughs> it could but typically it, could, the, and, it starts yeah. drifting into that chaotic evil if you start hitting the psychotic and you become right. – so chaotic right. neutral is floating that fine line between self-preservation and giving into your whims. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chaotic right. neutral just means that you don't believe in good and evil. Uh, you don't think that that you know you don't have this moral that that this ethic that that you should try to make. Uh, the, you know, if you have good, then you, you then you then you believe more than just benefiting yourself. You believe in benefiting society to some point. Uh, if you have evil, then it just means you believe in really more just benefiting yourself. But if you you're just neutral, feel as chaos reigns. You just believe the world – what's going to happen is going to happen and you, you're just kind of going along with it. Mm. You know, For the most part, you're benefiting yourself but you, you know, you'd like to see other people benefit as well. But you're not, but, you know, you're not really in charge of their fate. That's kind of how you look at it. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's you take care of yourself. They'll take care of them. Whatever happens, happens. Yep. Exactly. Cool. So, yeah. Oh, and I kind of fleshed out Bosco here. He is um, – his secondary skill, he's a trader barterer, so in Hamlet, or okay. at least he was. And his deity is Bokob, the uncaring. Okay, so you know what? Your character uh, happens to know the halfling we just spoke of because mm -hmm. uh, Matt, your halfling, uh, whose yes. name was one more time? Fildo. Okay, Fildo was working in the stables. That was owned by a horse trader who lived in Hamlet and ah. worked as a clerk for that horse trader. Uh, so, Nick, and your character's name one more time, Nick, is Bosco? Bosco. Okay, so Bosco was working as a clerk for that mm -hmm. horse trader. So he was uh, actually one of the more well-off people in Hamlet. Okay. Groovy. Mm -hmm. And this is really cool because now our listeners, particularly those who want to listen to how to – it's like how do all these characters know each other? How do they get together? What 
what Chad did is just a, a beautiful example of how through other things like the secondary skills and maybe if you had like the same deity that you worshipped or if you're from the same area, how you could come up with a backstory for all these characters know each other. Exactly. And that's why I like doing the secondary skill listed in the DMG because I always call it, this is what you would have done had you not become an adventurer. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like this. You said, "No, I want to know more about the world. I, I don't want to like just trade and barter like my character. I want to go out and like learn arcane arts and blast them with fireballs." Exactly. <laughs> I don't want to be an assistant pig keeper the rest of my life. Right. <laughs> so okay, Vince. I think that. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Vince, you already went over your character. I'm yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. And uh, Oh, and yep. it's my turn, actually. I created a character, too, even though I'm going to be running the game. Now, I didn't create a PC. Uh, I created an NPC, uh, which is actually quite common in D&D that the DM will do this. Uh, and he is a henchman. And you don't see it as used as much, actually, these days. But back when in the in the seventies, late seventies, boy, henchmen were used quite often. Yeah. Uh, mm, oh yeah. And I created a henchman named Gideon Blackhawk, and he's a uh, just kind of a wandering mercenary fighter who happened to wander into Hamlet looking for some work. Uh, he's a younger guy, uh, and. He just right now, he's just kind of hanging out at the inn. Uh, the inn's name is Spotted Cow. It's a, it's a nice little inn tavern and looking for work. Uh, and he's just kind of your – nothing real special about him. He's fairly quick. Uh, but otherwise, he's just pretty much a run-of-the-mill guy, looks – you know, who uh, kind of a run-of-the-mill wandering mercenary. So when you guys are ready, we will go ahead and start. Okay, I guess that will well, take us out of our segment. I just want to say I didn't name my character. I did while you guys were talking. He named him Leonidas Patronus is his name. Ah, very right. good. Leonidas. Yes. <laughs> okay. Leonidas, though. <laughs> yeah. And I will say this, uh, uh, because we're obviously not going to go through this whole portion, but it, it, essentially you guys at one point decided that the life of, uh, of a townsperson commoner just didn't agree with you. There was bigger and better things out there. You'd heard you, – you wanted to be the stuff of stories, not just listen to them. So one day you guys all got together, decided you wanted to go out there and, and see the world – uh, and uh, maybe you had heard Gideon telling stories of his wanderings, even though he hasn't had many wanderings. Uh, and so you guys uh, asked him if he would you know, join you guys. You're going to make your own name out there. He said, okay, and, and you guys set off to find adventure. Okay, candy. send the DM rules now next. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want, but I have a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. And now we're in DM Rules, and we are going to talk about combat in AD&D. Combat in AD&D, the basics of it are fairly simple. You... So we'll just start with the very first thing you do in combat, you have to determine your initiative. It's just a D6 roll. However, this is where every DM seems to have their own way of doing it. 
By the book, it's a group initiative. There's one D6 roll, part, players, DM. That is it. I always have done it via uh, individual. I That's just something as I have a, uh, have a preference for. But we'll get into later, you really don't need to do the individual initiative if you use weapon speed and that ends up making an individual initiative so with less dice rolling and that so initiative would be first for our combat then combat is resolved you roll your d20 and the dm consults a chart players do not know what they need to hit and originally in this game players wouldn't actually even roll dice the player would dictate my character is attacking this monster and the dm would roll but players like rolling dice and they spend all this money on their shinies so we should let them roll yeah and there's one thing not to forget uh and and and, and this always surprises my players because i i use this and i know jason brought it up once too uh before even going into initiative the very first thing that surprise. has to be established well even before surprise uh, well, actually, I guess technically, if you're, out, if, if you're in a situation where surprises, then I guess that would precede this. But you have to declare actions mm-hmm. because did, before you know where, who's going first, you have to know who's doing what. Right. Because otherwise, if you did the initiative first, then if you lost the initiative, you would actually be at, a, at, a, at an advantage because then you could adjust what you're doing. Now, before we get any further, people are probably screaming on different methods. This is all based on the DM. Some DMs will allow you just to roll your initiative for your side and just go. Mm-hmm. Some DMs will do by the book, to call your actions, and then when it's time for you to go, if that action is no longer available, oh well. So it's up to the DM at this point. So continue, yeah. Jed. But I always uh, I follow the rule that you must declare an action before we do the initiative. And with that, actually, I think it works best if you use weapon speed as well. Oh, yeah, I agree. Right. It's when weapon speed doesn't work when you roll initiative, declare your action. Because then that just exacerbates the uh, negatives of having very large weapons with a high weapon speed. Because high, like AC and D and AD&D is bad when it comes to weapon speed. The higher your weapon right. speed, the slower your weapon. And if you have a small weapon and they're going against someone with a high weapon speed and you have a dagger that has a weapon speed of two, there's a chance you could get multiple attacks. And again, weapon speed is very, very optional for your game. Mm-hmm. You have to do it at all, and it will not break the game by not using it. No. It, it, Just wave your hand on it because it's more complex than it's worth. Well, I don't know that it's so complex. I, I, you know, it's another, it's an additional step. I'm not using it right now in my current play-by-post game, but I have used weapon speed in the past, and, I'm, and I've actually not really had any problems with it. Uh, in fact, I probably in my next game, I will use it again. I actually like using weapon speed because uh, I find that, especially when you're using party initiative, and I know uh, it, it works really well with party initiative because, as mm-hmm. we were saying earlier, 
uh, it does it, with party initiative. It does give it lends that aspect of individual initiative to party initiative, and it also when you when you use weapon speed, it does begin to make the players have to really think about: Do they really want to take that two-handed sword? Because the two-handed sword does a lot of damage. But now they have to start considering the fact that it's a big sword and it takes a lot of time to swing a two-handed sword. And they're probably going to be going near the end of every round, even if they had a very good party initiative roll. So say your party initiative was two and your two-handed sword has a weapon factor of ten. Uh, that means you're actually going technically on 12, uh, or another way of saying it is you're going last <laughs> in the round, or you could actually technically, what they're really saying is you're going at the beginning of next round. Yeah. Uh, so it's, and, and the reason is because you're having to actually build up the momentum for that swing. Uh, it's not like a short sword. It's not a fencing epee, you know, or saber. Uh, you're actually you're swinging to, a claymore. You're having to swing a claymore and put some brute strength and actually get some inertia behind it yeah. uh, to deliver that damage. Uh, so people, players, suddenly start saying to themselves, I'm not so sure I want to carry a two-handed sword. Oh, well, guess what? In real history, not that many people carried two-handed swords and swing them like that. Now, of course, if you were to tell your DM, well, then here's how I'm, I want a two-handed sword, but I'm going to wield it in a different way. And, and this is actually how many people back in the real history did wield it, was they would actually grip uh, the blade itself with one hand and they actually that's why you'll see that there's a, an area near the base of the blade where you can actually hold it mm-hmm. uh, and they might jab with it jab now with that it, yeah. would cut the the speed factor in half or at least that's how i would rule it uh, but it also changed the damage factor on it uh, so there you know this gets into how do you use the weapon and and i like this this is one of the reasons why i like speed factors because it starts adding in this whole new dimension on how you use a weapon and how it affects uh combat but another way of thinking of of the speed factor is really the same way you think of casting time for a magic user because it adds really no more complexity to the game than what you're already dealing with when you factor in the casting time for your magic user's spell casting. Mm. Really, it's the exact same thing. Meh. <laughs> yeah, it also helps mechanically distinguish various weapons because True. not using weapon speed, what's the difference between a club and a mace? A they, two-handed sword and a dagger. You're saying they both can be swung at the same speed. Yeah. I just on the table. I just go left to right around the table right. for me. Just make keep it simple. That's all. Yeah, you know, and that's what I'm doing right now uh, in my game. Uh, but you know, I may even change that. I may put them to a vote and see if they're willing to let us move to weapon speed because I actually do like using the speed factor. So we're talking about weapon speeds and. Uh, casting times for for spells and all that. So, what's going to be our uh, little scenario here, so we can see how all this plays out for our listeners? 
Well, that's an excellent uh, point you bring up there, Nick. Why don't we get into it? So what we're going to do is uh, demonstrate how an actual combat situation would work in the game. Uh, I prepared a short little scenario, and using the characters that we have drawn up, we are going to put them through their paces. Okay. So here we are in Hamlet. <laughs> Why don't we just jump right to the battle? Not anything. Yeah, we're not actually starting in <laughs> Hamlet. I know. <laughs> Jeez, Nick. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're in Hamlet yeah, in a tavern. A mysterious old stranger hey, comes up to you us. you could have a combat right in a tavern. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I attack Nick. Okay. Yeah, that brings Magic up, missile. Uh, Poof. <laughs> we're, I'm not even going to attempt to uh, tackle explaining the DMG's uh, uh, brawling rules. That one I just house rolled. So, yeah, no barroom brawls on this one. Uh, okay, so let's get to the scenario. Uh, one second here. I just have to do one thing here, get to it. And here we go. All right, so it has been... Only two nights back when you and your small band sitting around the table of the Spotted Cow Tavern in Hamlet had decided to seek a life of adventure beyond anything offered by the mundane trades of village life. Yet that seemed now like a lifetime ago after having struggled to find your way through the rugged highlands which made up the southeastern stretch of the Cron Hills. If one had to be lost, this was perhaps one of the least desirable places to be so. For these windswept buttes, commonly referred to as the Troll Knuckles, were known to be the home of goblins, wolves, and yes, even a troll or three. And so, after a full day of working your way through a particularly narrow pass, you were elated to find yourself at last upon the edge of the Welkwood, whereupon you had been told there was great adventure to be found as well as great danger. However, by this point, the sun had nearly set. And so after a full day of working your way through a particularly narrow pass, you were related to find yourself at last upon the Welkwood. Uh, however, by this point, the sun had nearly set. So fearing that uh, facing the dangers of the wood in the darkness would not be a good idea, you decided to set up a camp before making your foray into the forest the next morning. So now you have found a place high upon one of the tallest hills, knowing that the high ground is the best place to camp. And thereupon, you found the remains of what looked to be an ancient burial mound. Now only a large stone, wind scarred by time, remains. The scene is set, and it can be assumed you have built a small campfire and have set up your bedrolls. It's roughly 2 a.m., and we will say that our fighter is on watch, which would be, uh, who is our, we actually, uh, I the believe henchman. the henchman is our fighter. Okay, why don't we say, Vince, you're on watch right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm on watch, cool. Leonidas is on watch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, Vince. Uh, so at this point, you're on watch, and why don't you give me a, give me a wisdom check which means you'll have to roll a 3d6 and roll under your wisdom. All right. And do you want to explain to the listeners while I'm doing that why I'm doing this? Well, what we're going to do here is at this point, it's actually in a game I couldn't tell you why you're making this roll because but basically I want to see if you're hearing something. I rolled a 12, which is underneath my wisdom. Yes, I made successfully under my wisdom. 12 DM. 
Okay. You're hearing a grating sound like a like stone grating against stone, and it is coming from behind you, as okay. I am assuming that you are facing out away from the camp. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty dumb to be staring at the fire. So There you go. <laughs> so, uh, as I said in my setup, right, you guys are at the top of a hill where you made your campfire, and all that was up there was a old ancient burial mound, and mm-hmm. so old that all that was left was like this one kind of a big stone that was like, you know, uh, might have been a capstone who knows? It's hard. You couldn't read it because age had already swept all the writing off of it. All right. So I was on watch. So I quickly spin around with my trident ready to see what's going on. Okay. Uh, you spin around. And at that point, I need to get a surprise roll. <gasps> a surprise. So surprise. What we're to do is you're going to roll a 1d6. And I'm going to roll a 1d6. And I rolled a two. And I rolled a... I rolled a six. Though, in this case, I actually probably didn't need to roll. Uh, Okay, you are surprised. Because a roll of one or a roll of two is surprise, unless you're a ranger. And a ranger is only surprised on a roll of one. But you don't have a ranger in the party. Now, we know you're surprised on a one to two for a non-ranger because if you go uh, to the DMG and to the combat section, uh, you will find in the combat section, one of the first things you see is that they talk about surprise on page 61. And they give this nice little chart that shows the results on a 1D6 for both sides on what happens uh, to determine, you know, if uh, if you are or are not surprised by something, mm-hmm. generally speaking, an encounter with a creature. Now, some creatures are never surprised for, say, the undead. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. It's listed right in their description if it is or not. So, Gener- that is correct. That is absolutely correct. Okay, so you whip around and are shocked into inactivity to see that the capstone has been thrust aside. And coming up out of the ground is a horrid, pale, uh, emaciated figure in the remains of what might once have been fine garments and chainmail. Uh, but not just one. It looks like there's already a second f- such figure following up behind him. And the skin just hangs off in tattered scars, rags. You know, it's just nasty looking corpse walking. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to be screaming probably at this point being first level. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> at this point, though, you are surprised. So you're actually just sitting there with your jaw hanging open. Now, how many segments is he surprised? He is surprised for two segments. Oh, actually, no, God. one segment because he rolled a two. Now, had you rolled a one, you would have been surprised for two segments. Uh, had you had both you and the creature you were facing been surprised, say he rolled a one and you rolled a one, then nobody would have been surprised because then, you, you know, that's just a moot situation at that point. 
but now, here's what that really means. And in most of the games that I've seen, uh, a lot of times, me included, what they would do is they'd simply say, okay, round one goes to the creature, and then after that, we'll start rolling initiative normally. In reality, it's exactly what Nick was saying. It's just simply segments, okay? Mm -hmm. So it means that automatically... Uh, the creature you're facing has won the initiative and they have gotten the the jump on you by a certain number of segments. Okay. They basically get free attacks on you. Exactly. Uh, well, they get, they, they get two segments because uh, – well, they get one segment in this case uh, because by rolling – in this case, uh, you want higher. The higher you get, the better on a surprise right. roll. Right. Okay. The, the, more so, the, the more the spread between the two surprise rolls is the number of segments. Of right. Oh, you know what? So you're, you're correct. So I did that one wrong. So you got a two and they got a four. So I, uh, they got a six, actually, uh, when I rolled theirs. All so of they get three segments of free attacks, basically. Or two actually, to six is uh, four. four. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although undead actually can't be surprised. Uh, but, uh, so technically they'd always get a six. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we can already say now if we roll initiative, which we technically do roll initiative, but, uh, we give them a bonus of they're already going to, whatever they roll, they're going to get, they're going to be four segments ahead of the game. Now, the traditional right to roll initiative is to roll a D6, and a mm -hmm. lot of people roll D10, but we're going to do it the traditional way. So why don't you give me another D6 roll there, Vince, and this is actually for the whole party. And you're going to have to wake them up before they can do anything at this point because these guys aren't making a lot of noise. Four. All right. Uh, da, da, da. So technically you would be going on an eight, which means you would be going because minus what they're going to be able to do. Uh, they got the drop. Uh, do, do, do. Well, but uh, you know what? And this is the complicated one. This is the one I hadn't really thought out before because I don't really use in my game surprise in this fashion. Uh, to make it simple, I usually just say if you get surprised, they get one round of free attacks on you. And then after that, you do it normally. Let's do that. Uh, okay. Well, let's just do it that way because it's how most people do it that I've seen. That's how uh, it, yeah. They get surprised. They get first attack on you this round. You don't get to do anything. And then next round, we go normally. Correct. Okay. So this round, you see four ultimately of these things come up out of the ground. Yeah. And they just look like the walking dead. And they stumble towards you, their hands out. And each one of them will get to make one attack. All right. So let's go ahead and do that. One D. Now they're going to roll a two hit roll. And then if they make their two hit roll against your armor class, they are going to make a damage roll based on whatever type of weapon or damage, you know, even if they're, even a hand can have a particular damage, I guess, for the claws and such as that. They call that natural weaponry. So in this case, it would be natural weaponry because they're not using weapons. They have horrid, twisted, broken nails. 
so first I roll 1d20. And it's just a, a straight 1d20. They don't get any bonuses to hit. Armor class is six. Okay. That's that. That's that. That's that. And that's that. All right. So your armor class is six. So it's going to take them. A ten. I refer to my monster matrix chart. Found in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yep, page 75. Mm -hmm. Or if you have the DMZ screen, which I'm using, you can also refer to that. That as well. And... All right, so they're requiring a 13 to hit you, actually. Oh, all right. Now... Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Uh, two of them hit you. The other two merely claw ineffectually, swiping at your armor, which holds. Now, at this point, this is a very important thing I'd like to mention. In fact, I mentioned it to my part, uh, to the group that I normally run, and even said this would be something very good to talk about on the show. Uh, one of the most commonly misunderstood concepts in the game on combat is the combat round and the number of actions you actually take. Most people think that combat is a I hit you, you hit me. It's not really that way. Uh, out of character, yes. You get, you know, your number of attacks is how many times you get to attack. In character, it's not really that way. Uh, it's more like real life. It's more like you're, you know, uh, if, you, if your number of attacks is one in character, you're actually swinging probably three times. It's just that at your level... Uh, you're probably, you're really realistically only going to have a chance to penetrate their defenses one time out of those three attacks. You're parrying, you're jabbing, you're moving around, and so are they. Uh, this is furious fighting. So just something to throw out there when you're envisioning it. You know, it's not just a one, it's not like a robotic one hit, then he one hits you. You know, that's not how it works. Right. And that's the DMG also. When you look up underneath, that's one of the, it's the very first paragraph under combat where they talk about that, actually. It's the first, and it's actually, uh, actually, it's the second and third paragraph. I'm sorry about that. But they equate it to boxing, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, okay, so, anyway. Um, uh, and just one thing on rounds. Remember, it's actually a full minute of action one exactly. round. It's n not like in later games where it's like a five, ten second snapshot of time this is actually a full minute so you can do quite a bit in a minute that is not swinging a weapon so just mm -hmm. keep that in mind as well right because a segment is actually uh well let's see a segment is six seconds right and uh, ten. ten or ten seconds yeah and you have six of them that's why you roll a d6 for initiative mm -hmm. uh and then each round is one minute uh, and then each turn is 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, and so, yeah, so that's why it's, you know, 10 seconds, because that's you're doing a flurry of activity in that 10 seconds in character. Isn't that how right. it was reversed in second edition to use the D10 method that you use, Nick? Yep. And it became six uh, second segments. Yeah. And then they use the D10 edition. as opposed to the D6. That's how they, that's right. In case people were wondering why they use D10s. That's yeah. correct. Go ahead, Chad. Sorry. Okay. So two of these zombie-like creatures 
managed to strike you, uh, Bosco. No, Leonidas. Oh, hey, Leonidas. You know what? Why, was that? Why did I say Bosco? My apologies. Maybe you Two want to of them answer. managed to strike. Uh, minus strike Leonidas. Uh-huh. Uh, so now we will roll their damage. Oh, boy. Now, one second here while I... Kiss the sky? Oh. Taco? <laughs> Why are we so quiet? Chad? Yeah, no, I'm here. Hold on. One oh. second. I just had to, I had to grab it real quick. One second here. I'm making the rolls uh, right now. Okay. So they're doing 1d8 in damage each. Oh, my God. Oh. He could be dead. Yeah, I could be dead is right. Okay. You're very lucky because one managed to roll a whopping one point of damage. And the other one managed to roll a whopping three points of damage. Oh, you're down half your hit points, though. But that is a lot of damage. Yes, it is. (laughs) Now, they only get one attack. You said four total? Uh, Well, there are four of these things total. No, four hit points of damage. Oh, yeah, a total of four hit points of damage. Got it. Okay. Now, uh, now uh, the round is over, and now we're going to roll initiative, uh, which in this case, you automatically win because these guys always go last. Aww. So, am I close to anybody, or is a scream considering a... Do you consider screams free actions? Yes, that would be a free action, and it would and it would easily wake these guys up because it, imagine a campfire; they're not far from you. No, and it's very silently quiet. So, oh yeah, eerily quiet. So I'm going to scream. Obviously, the next logical thing because I got hit twice. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to raise up my trident in the air and use my clerical ability to turn undead, since I'm thinking they're undead creatures. Oh, yes. You definitely believe that. Okay. Now, you can do this because you actually haven't struck them yet. Remember, once you strike the undead, they actually can't be turned at that point. If you engage them in melee, you can't try to turn them. Right. And, if you, and then once you've tried to turn them, if you fail, you can't try to turn them again. But let's give it a shot. Yeah. Now, uh if you already know how to turn, why don't you explain it? I'm going to say to the DM, I like to use my turning ability. Now, I don't know. Obviously, as level one, I don't know what type of creature this is. I'm not supposed to know. Right. And so I'm going to refer, but I know what type of creature it is. So I'm going to my DMG here. Or actually, I could, could just go. I think it's on the chart. Yeah, I was about to say I could just go to my screen here. <laughs> I'm yep. going to my D20 because Chad's going to say roll a D20. Exactly. I'll look at my player character sheet, and I'm going to see what number higher than I have for turning that I can turn. And, and Chad will say yes or no based upon what he believes I should know. And I rolled a 14 on my D20 roll for turning ability. And I say, well, it looks like it might, based on what the information I have, I can turn anything zombie or skeleton wise 
Okay, and what happens? One of them turns and begins backing back down that hole within the hill. Only one? Only one. Yes, because actually uh, you can keep trying as long as you're successful in turning one type. Every round you can try to turn another one. I thought it was a D12 roll then. Yeah. The number uh, actually, number affected. Well, that's if it's an asterisk next to it. So hold on one second. I may be wrong on this. Yeah, number, number affected for the asterisk is 7 to 12 rather than 1 to 12. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry about that. I misread that one. You're absolutely correct. Why don't you give me a D12? My apologies, listeners. <laughs> and I rolled a 5. All right. All four begin backing back down the hole. Plus anybody else that was down there. (laughs) Yeah. As silently as they appeared, they again shuffle back down that dark stairwell. And everybody else is also waking up and seeing these pale, scarred, emaciated figures and their wasted uh, remnants of clothing going back down. And they can see Leonidas bleeding heavily from several areas of armor. Leonidas. (laughs) What? This Uh, is sport. Oh, sorry. And he holds before him his his trident and his scream to Poseidon has woke you all. Yeah. Would anybody like to attack them as they descend? They walk very slowly. Yeah, I think I'll try to attack. I'll use my darts. Okay. You throw your dart. Give me a d20. Okay. Um, so um, I'll just... Can I throw three of them? Because a rate of fire is three. Rate of fire is three. But here's the thing. The rate of fire is three. That does not mean that you get to throw all three at once. That just means that during the round, you're going to get three attacks. Okay. So I'll roll for the first one. Nah, it's going to miss. I rolled a three. (laughs) Okay. You rolled a three. That definitely would miss. So it sails away. Now, before you do another one, uh, Matt, will your character be doing anything? Yeah, as he'll the one that's in the very back, he'll run up and give him a nice little poke with the dagger to hurry him into the hole. Get that All one right, so that you're trailing. attempting to do a backstab. Yes, albeit typically you would not be able to backstab, backstab. on undead. Right. They have to have vital parts. Exactly. Yeah. So he's just going to attack it. I'm just, but my character, however, just sees these things and are like, oh, it's dark, kind of looks like a human. So that's his instinct. Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure. He wouldn't know that he he might very well think that it would be effective. Yeah, especially coming out of the sleep. He's like, he hasn't had time to assess the situation. And I rolled a five. Ooh, buzz, buzz me. Of course, he uh, ran after it and think it was human because he's a halfling. He's racist. Sure. So, yeah. Well, that just simply means that, you know, you, you, you stabbed it and your blade was turned aside by a piece of, of armor that yet remained. And it's probably like ankle or something with probably the height <laughs> difference since I'm two and a half feet tall. What? Yeah, you're sure. It was, a, it, was, it was like a leg grieve. Yeah. Not a halfling. You're like, jeez. I'm a young, I'm still a teenager for halflings. 
You're like a quarterling or something. Yeah, I know. I'm a hornswoggle. <laughs> oh, jeez. Had to go there? Yes. Had to get our wrestling reference in? Had to get the one reference in. Oh, my. <laughs> All right. Can I try to hit with another dart? Sure, but first I would uh, I look to your... I look to the henchman, and uh, Gideon decides not to do anything. He's holding his action right now, which means that he's not doing anything, but he would be able to do something later. Now, we move back first to Vince, because, mm. Vince, w- were you going to do anything this round? Uh, no, I'm going to just keep them turned as the party will pick them off. Uh, oh, good. Okay, well, here's an important thing to remember. Uh, if you turn a creature... Uh, now. Uh, you know what? We may even want to pause or if anybody wants to give me a quick answer, because I'm, I thought that if you turn something and then something, then somebody attacks them, that just that ruins the turning. Only only the one who's doing the turning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, if I if I keep concentrating on the turn, they'll never attack me. They will attack someone else, but not me. Right. Uh, and they okay, will try see, to. That's fight. an important thing. OK. Yeah. If they yeah. now if they get cornered, they will fight back. Yeah. Right, but they'll try to flee first. Other other player characters or whoever can attack the, those undead. It's just the one who's doing the turning. The cleric cannot. Right, and they. But will they attack other people besides? I mean, they won't attack the the cleric who's turning them. They'll try to get away from him. Yeah, but that's w- true. If, if somebody else is attacking them while they're fleeing, will they attack? That they will. Person? They will continue fleeing first. If unable to flee, they will attack. Yeah. Okay. All right, then. When I first started playing, we had a DM who did it. He he just always said that if anybody attacked him, it broke the thing. So, okay, then, in that case. Uh, all right, so uh, at this point, then, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Nick, go ahead and throw your next dart. I rolled a natural 20. <laughs> okay, now, in the core rules, that is actually not considered a critical hit because we I don't know. have critical hits. But this is where a DM can have fiat and say that I allow what are called critical hits if you roll a natural 20. And there are various ways that you can you can rule a critical hit. Some people just say it's max damage for that weapon. Other people say it's double damage, whatever you roll. Uh, my particular favorite way of doing this is to say that whatever that it does max damage on whatever the max damage for that weapon is. Ooh, three points. Yeah, so if the damage for that weapon is, is you know, if it can only do up to three points, uh, then you do three points of damage. But here's the thing, and I and you know what? I should have made this clear at the very beginning when you said you were using a dart. Uh, darts in my game, and again, this is a DM house rule. I, I don't agree with the damage as posted for darts in the DMG because I actually know what a military dart looks like, and it's not a dart you use on a dart board. It's actually bigger than an arrow, smaller than a javelin. So I actually rule that it does 1d4 because it doesn't have the force oh. of an arrow. Because four it's points of damage. So you can do four points of damage. Yay! That is correct. All right. Thump. So four points of damage, and it thunks into the back of this thing. Now, real quick, uh, Matt, what is your character doing? Well, he, your character only gets the one attack. My character right? only gets the one attack. And... Okay. That case, then, uh, since there's uh, nothing else going on, uh, then, Nick, you can get in your third yeah. dart. Right. But Let's one more aside, though, on the natural 20, 
it doesn't even necessarily mean it's an automatic hit either. Oh, yeah, that's another, uh, you know, it's always been just one of those things that uh, a lot of DMs have simply said that if you rolled a natural 20, you always hit. But it doesn't mean that. No, because if you look at the attack matrix, when you start getting negative armor classes, you can need to roll a 25. Mm-hmm. Or a, so. Right. And people might say, well, how do you roll a 25 on a 20-sided dice? Well, Bonuses. that's... You gotta have bonuses, magical weapons, or maybe strength. high strength. Or if you're using yeah. missile and weapons, some creatures a high dex. have to have a magical weapon. Some demons yeah. require plus three weapons to even hit. For my third dart, I rolled a sixteen. Okay, that hits. So why damage? D four damage. Uh, one. <laughs> okay, and I'm sorry. How much damage was that? Yeah, a one. one. <laughs> Okay. Let me just mark that off of him. All right. So they are continuing down. Uh, two of them have already gone back down, and we are in round two, by the way. Uh, they will lose initiative again this round uh, because they always lose initiative. So, uh, hey, Chad, you sorry about Mr. Gideon who delayed his action. Yes, he held his action, but he never declared an action. Therefore, he lost his action. All right, making sure. Yes. Uh, so he actually is just kind of, you know, he's in shock. And, you know, you guys seem to have the situation in hand. And and being that he's actually not in this for any kind of quest for glory, he's just in it for the money. Uh, he's willing to let you guys handle it if that's what you guys want to do. Uh, the undead uh, freak him out. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so like I said now, by this point, uh, actually by this point, one of them has gone back underground. Okay. Uh, the second one is starting to make his way this round back underground. Uh, what are you guys doing? All right. I am going to, seeing that these things have, one of them has taken two darts into its back. It hasn't yeah. dropped. I think I'm going to have to drop it now. I mean, it's hard to tell with these things because it's not bleeding either. Well, uh, so I threw two big old darts into its back and it hasn't gone down. So therefore, mm-hmm. I am going to use my arcane powers and cast magic missile. Okay. Now that, what is the casting time on that? The casting time for magic missile is one segment. Okay. So, uh, since you guys already won the initiative. Now, here's an important thing to also say. In, in combat, there is an order of how things work. Uh, now, missile weapons always go first. Mm. Uh, and in this situation, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Now, I was ruling it that, you know, I was ruling the missile weapons uh, with multiple rate of fire, much like, uh, you know, if a person had the ability to attack twice in a round, uh, that they didn't get both the attacks one after another. But I may be wrong on that one it, because rate of fire is two. So perhaps and, and missile weapons and spells always begin at the beginning of the of the round. Now, Matt. Uh, Nick and Vince, mm-hmm. if you want to correct me, uh, do you guys split up missile weapon attacks throughout the round? Or, no, uh, I mean, I know, I know from a house ruling effect, uh, most of us tend to just put them all, lump them all together into one attack. I actually split them up. I usually split them up too. 
Yeah, I think from a pure core rule, even uh, even though they go at the beginning of the round, uh, I think though that you would still split the second one up later in the round. But you know, again, uh, you know, before everybody gets their next set of melee actions, if they mm-hmm. if they got a second set of those during the 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 same round, right? So anyway, that's how I'm doing it in this one. But okay, okay, so. We know missile weapons and spells go off before melee actions do. Uh, so your spell casting is beginning. Zot. That's right. Is there any <laughs> missile weapon action going on? Nope. Nope. Okay. Now, because you guys uh, are always winning the initiative, by the way, this brings up another important part. I know I had mentioned earlier in the show that uh, we always declare actions before we take care of initiative. Well, we don't need to take care of initiative in this because we know that these creatures will always lose initiative. Therefore, that's why I have not been asking for you guys to declare actions Mm. because you're going to win anyway. So there's really no reason. But had you guys been up against something that – would not always lose the like initiative. giant spiders. Exactly. Then I would say, okay, I want to know what you guys are doing. Then I would tell you guys what I think they're going to do because I think that's fair. Uh, and then I would say, now let's roll and see whose actions uh, declared go off first. Right. Uh, okay. So that said, uh, uh, Leonidas is uh, – I'm sorry, uh, uh, Bosco is spellcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, Leonidas is continuing to turn them back down into the ground. Right. Uh, and uh, Fildo yeah. will be is going stabby, stabby on the stabby, stabby. Yes. Yeah. And something to also to keep in consideration with when you have someone throwing missile weapons into melee combat, there is a there is. A formula for determining, did you hit an unintended target? Right. <laughs> that is called firing into melee. Yes. So when those darts went flying at our zombie friend, that mm-hmm. uh, it there was a chance it could have hit poor Fildo instead. But fortunately, that he's a very correct. tiny fellow, so he would be most likely not take melee fire. Now, should the situations be reversed and you're trying to shoot a halfling who's in combat with your human-sized friend, you got a better shot at hitting your human-sized friend. Yeah, and in this situation, uh, you you take in the size of the creatures against each other. So we know Fildo is a small creature, and we know that these zombies are medium creatures. So uh, that said, a small is half the size of a medium. So there might be like a twenty-five percent uh, chance. Yeah, you know, I would say there's about a twenty-five percent chance of hitting him because there's more of them and they're bigger than he is. Uh, so you know, uh, what I technically should have done last round was for each one of those I should have rolled uh, a d one hundred and or you know I I didn't you know I. I know there's a specific dice, I believe, that they mention, but, you know, yeah. semantics. Well, firing in the melee, it's on page 63 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Oh, okay. Discharge. So. Okay. And it goes by small, medium, or large target. Right. You mm-hmm. add up the total values, 
the developer and ratio. It's a percentage. Yeah, so it's a percentage. Right, right. so it is a D100. I was correct on that. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so but luckily, I'm casting magic missile, and I don't even right, need the roll so to hit. Since we did, since I forgot it last round, and this is another little nice rule: is if a DM doesn't think of something, it's kind of like Monopoly. You know, if they don't remember it, then you know, don't mention it to them. Uh, you know, generally speaking, it's it's bad etiquette for a DM to to go back and retcon something unless they ask the players first. Right. Uh, so I didn't think of it and therefore I'm, you know, my bad. I'm not going to go back and change it now. Right. And uh, Bildo so, is thankful. <laughs> welcome. So now <clears throat> the new one, uh, nobody's doing missile weapons. Somebody is doing a spell weapon. So mm-hmm. we know that's going to go first. It takes one segment for that to go off. Uh, what is the, uh, and I forgot to do this one last round too, but what is the speed factor on your weapon there, Fildo? It would be two. Okay, so a magic missile is actually going to go off one segment before your strike does. Right. Okay, because uh, he has a casting time of one. So go ahead and roll the damage on your magic missile there, oh, uh, Bosco, because we know that a magic missile never misses. Right, I rolled a three, so that's D4 plus one, so I did four points of damage to the it same guts. Yeah! It Woo-hoo. falls to the ground. Bosco does its his victory dance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now it's time for Fildo to do his. Yeah, so the magic missile just hit, and as it's falling down to the ground, Fildo starts stabbing it. Okay, well, it is definitely dead now, and, and Fildo definitely hits it this time, has no problem. Yeah, uh, I killed it. <laughs> he plants a foot upon it triumphantly. Yes. Uh, as the others continue shuffling slowly back down into the moldy earth. Uh, end of that round. Uh, we are in round three, and now there is only one of them left above the ground, as yet another has gone below. Well, we wait for them to go down. And goodbye. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Bye. Well, they all go on back down under the ground, and one of the last things heard is the grating stone as one skeletal hand moves it back into place before <coughs> disappearing into the dark. Yeah. Yay. More right. of that, where that came from, if you continue your <laughs> nasty undeadness. Yes, come back Stop. out, and I'll stab you again and kill you, too. <laughs> now, one thing I, I think also illustrated, though, in this encounter... Uh, is that in first edition AD&D, the DM is not bound to make adventure uh, to put you up against creatures that are the same hit dice or level as you are. These were zombies, and zombies are two hit dice creatures. Right. Now, it's, I, you know, this was not, you know, I typically do not throw suicidal uh, creatures at my players, but I also do not, uh, I do not, uh, you know, uh, not treat them with kid gloves either. And combat should not, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that Vince thought of turning them rather than simply attacking them. You're right. Because, and another thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, combat is not always the only route you have to face with a monster. The DMG talks about parlaying uh, with creatures. It talks about avoiding 
creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if if a, if a, you know if your DM throws something that you know is too powerful for you to handle, rather than jumping up and and, and getting angry at him and saying he has no right to do that to you, uh, and then storming out of the room, understand first he does have the right to do that to you, and then understand you have other options than combat to handle that situation. Yeah. The fact that you can only think of combat is your issue, not his. Sometimes it's better to run away and fight another day. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think another example here, and we had like a little bit of everything here. We had a little bit of turning undead, mm-hmm. missile weapons, spells, you know, a little bit of melee. So we had a nice kind of cross-section of everything that could happen in combat. But I also saw another thing that we did I thought was a good example of of the difference between player knowledge and character knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all knew as players, okay, these are zombies. I, but our characters, which is total different knowledge, I mean, like with, with Phil there, he didn't know what the heck they were. They were just humans coming out of the ground, and he was stabbing them every which way. Mm-hmm. Now, the cleric might have known because, you know, part of his... You know, part of his wisdom and, and knowledge of the world, I mean, he has to have knowledge of the undead, and he probably knew what they were, and that's thus trying to turn them. My character, maybe not at all. I mean, tried throwing, uh, throwing two uh, darts at him, still didn't go down. It's like, okay, I better hit him with my one spell here. Maybe this will take him out. So we didn't act on previous knowledge as players yeah, and they could be on. Combat. They could be one hit point, and because they're zombies, they're not going to bleed, and they're not. You know, they're already dead. They're not right. really, unless you break their leg, they're not going to walk any different. Yeah. You know, I think that's some of the things that some people forget about is when they're playing this game is they got to separate what they know about the game itself from what their character actually knows of the world. Mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of people forget that they say, "Oh, they're zombies." Okay, so we got to do this, this, and this. Well, wait a minute. If you're playing a first level nobody, you don't know Jack. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and it was and good think, that nobody told, uh, you know, it's, I, I like the fact that nobody said, quick, you know, quick Leonides, turn them. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I hate it I'm, when I'm running a game. Right. It's somebody who's playing like a fighter or a different class tells the magic user or the cleric how to do something of their class. Right. And I'm like, really? How does your fighter even know what a magic missile is? Yeah, <laughs> all I saw was Leonidas. Uh, the, uh, the other guy had to study long and hard it. to know about that spell. Your character's now advising the magic user. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, so there you go, folks. There's a basic combat, and it was very drawn out because we were going over every possible little scenario Chad can think of just to give you examples left and right. Usually combat is a lot quicker than that, but there is a good example of how it works. And let's head into our final segment of Creature Feature Theater. Are you saying that I put... An abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long creature feature theater. And now we're in the creature feature theater, and we are going to discuss some of the staples of D and D gaming, and these are the low level ones, not dragons and things of that nature for if our first level adventurers instead of coming out of that 
hole in the ground. The zombies was a dragon. We <laughs> it, the combat would have went a lot quicker, mm-hmm. a lot quicker for sure, and we would have made some tasty treats, I'm sure. Right. So when you think of some of the staples, it's like you got goblins, orcs, kobolds, or if you prefer your undead, you have like skeletons and zombies, like we dealt with in the past <laughs> past segment. Uh, first off, there is great debate about the kobold, puppy or lizard. Go. Pup. Yes. <laughs> the lizard puppy. It's a oh. cross of both. Puppy. Ooh, as the community. Peanut butter, chocolate. I've always considered them puppies. Aha, uh-huh, we win. Yes, puppies for the win. But Lexi cast wins. Yes. Distantly <laughs> related to dragons. No. No. They're more, in my world, they're more related to gnolls than dragons. They're puppies. They're puppies. I just want, next time a player says, Can I be a half dragon? I say, Sure, you're a kobold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. But that would be a good way to make them stop requesting monsters as class. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. But with these creatures, like kobolds and goblins in particular, one-on-one, they're not all that scary. I mean, hit point. But but they don't go alone. They come in hordes. Yes, they're your horde creatures. Yes. They're not always stupid either. Right. No. Not to play them that way. Tucker's Cobalts, anyone? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Who knows the legend of Tucker's Cobalts? Right. Yes, it's like if you look at go to Goblins in the Monster Manual on page 47, it's like frequency uncommon, number appearing 40 to 400. Right. And, the, and they only have one to seven hit points each. Yeah. But yeah, and they're lawful evil too, which means they know how to work in organizational fashion. That's right. Right. They they'd be the ones to set traps to surprise mm-hmm. the party. They would be the one to, that would have the archers positioned, and so they could lob in a rain of arrows, then send in the melee uh, weapons. Then with these, yeah, and they'll be the ones who are using, uh, cons- uh, you know, organized, uh, concerted use of nets. Yes, they also they, they have a natural weapons like one d six, or they also will use weapons in armor and shields. Anything you could equip a player character with, you could equip a goblin with. Now, maybe some of your large pole arms and things of that nature would be a little on the ridiculous side because they are. Small, mm-hmm. but maybe they have the goblin equivalent of said item. Also, with these, I mean, it talks about in the the part of uh, the monster manual. For every forty goblins encounter, there's a leader and four assistants, and they'll each have six hit points. And but they attack as monsters with a full hit die. Because right. goblins do not have a full hit die. They only have one to seven points. So that means they actually attack at a lesser rate, uh, have a lesser chance to hit than, say, like an orc or a zombie. Same, yep. mm-hmm. And then kobolds are even lower on the totem pole when it comes to that. This is when your fighter will have that advantage we discovered a while ago, that one yes. graph, they get the multiple attacks per creature. Yeah what, if, yeah, what if you got your fifth level fighter or ranger or, or paladin? He can attack these little mama jamas 
five at a time in a combat round. Right. It's like kobolds only have one to four hit points. They have a half hit die. Yeah. So a fighter can go through and slaughter quite a few kobolds with, in one round. And that's mm-hmm. why having 40 to 400 kobolds appear. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. When you're mowing them down four or five at a time. It right. make, actually makes it a battle. And then kobolds are much like goblins. They, too, can have use equipment and weapons. But in their natural weapon, though, only does a 1d4. Kobolds, though, also have infrared. And they're another uh, trap setter as well because they're lawful evil with average intelligence. Mm-hmm. So they'll set traps as well, and they'll have some organization. And just like goblins, for every 40 encountered, there's a leader and two guards... And they're actually the equivalent of goblins. So you use the goblin stats for those kobolds. Right. And if there are 200 or more, they are in their lair. And then there will be an extra 5 to 20 guards. Then you get into uh, females equal to 50% of the total number. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of kobolds if you stumble upon their lair. Yep. So... One of the and the things to make, so you have all that, but plus, the, not to make them so, I guess generic, is they give them a little more individuality. I would say is, you know, if you're going to, for example, if you're going to encounter a bunch of goblins, well, I always see like goblins, kobolds, gnolls, whatever, they're made up of clans, so mm-hmm. I always give my group a clan name right. like what I'm doing for my my uh, new Greyhawk campaign I did did an encounter of 140 goblins and their clan name is Clan Bloodtooth so we have the Bloodtooth clan of goblins out there they got 4 leaders 16 assistant leaders and 120 regular goblins and I got them all fleshed out what they, what they have as far as um the leaders, their hit points, what they're armed with, the regular guard, uh, goblins, everything. So, but I gave it a clan name. Right. So, That's funny because I I have a goblin clan. Uh, I actually call them the Crack Tooth Clan. <laughs> yeah. So maybe this is an offshoot of the Crack Tooth. These are this is Blood Tooth. So you can picture them with their <laughs> standard, maybe of a black background. And they have a tooth with blood on it. So Clan Blood Tooth. I got another one of Kobolds. Their name is Clan Bone Snap. and i think i finally have solved the great puppy lizard debate for kobolds for there is a line in the monster manual it's when reference to their lairs there will also be young equal to 10 percent of the total number and then 30 to 300 eggs so unless your puppies come from eggs my puppy eggs okay well then they're they're puppies (laughs) Although in B2, there is a rumor that the Caves of uh, Chaos are inhabited by dogmen. <gasps> um, oh, maybe I'm... they mean the gnolls. No, they don't mean gnolls. No. Pre-arc. Pre-arc. Pre-arc, surrender. So, yeah, I like give them like clan names. And also, they're, I always picture the these uh, humanoid races as being very superstitious. Mm-hmm. So, I, th- you know, they're being led by maybe shamans or witch doctors 
or they're being led by other more strong creatures. I mean, goblins, chances are they're going to be led by hobgoblins. Yeah. Maybe, you know, or ogres or, 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 you know, maybe, uh, you know, bugbears or whatever. So just to kind of give them a little, like a little twist on it, maybe they're led by something else, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they, They'd have probably have a pretty good uh, uh, you know, communication structure too within their city. So, you mm-hmm. know, people might think, "Hey, you know, let's go attack the Kobold city." You know, I mean, how tough can that be? We'll just go room to room and take them out. Well, that one's not going to be very simple because you may go for the first couple of, of areas and and start taking them out. Well, they're you know these are this is not. <laughs> These are lawful evil creatures, and they live in a in a in a large community type society type structure and and you can bet your you know your bottom dollar that they got a communication structure built up and it's not going to be very long before they figure out that there are intruders in there and they're going to react and they're going to react in a concerted mm-hmm. in a very concerted manner and and you're not going to like it I guess that's why at lower levels. Of for player characters, these type of creatures, you can build a whole adventure around them. You know, like when you talked about Keep on the Borderlands, it's mostly just humanoids. It's kobolds, it's goblins, uh, I think there's an old clan in there. So, mm-hmm. you could build a whole adventure just around maybe weeding out a, a goblin enclave that's near a village. Something like that. Because there's so many of them, and there's always t- different variations you could just make on the basic core monster. You know, what they're led by, who they're led by, traps, like you said, play them intelligently. All that factors in. Work out taboos that they have. That can mm-hmm. be, t- you know, that those type of things can be used by the characters. You don't yep. just have to go room to room killing them all, because if you do in my game, you're probably not going to live, because eventually they're going to figure it out what's going on. They're going to they're going to stop you. Uh, right. But if you work outside the box, if you take if you know you know if you if you know their psychology and use that against them, if you you know these are the little things that are going to that are going to allow you to take advantage mm-hmm. of them, not just going room to room trying to kill them all. Uh, but yeah, and, and you're only going to be able to have that in a game if the DM, uh, is able to flush them out to that degree. Yes. Big, ugly humans work, big magic scare us. So yeah, well, actually in my game, I play by post game and I'm sure if my, my players are listening, they're going to figure this out now because I've alluded to it. But one of the reasons, uh, they're trying to outrun these wolves is because, uh, they've been trying to get to the, to the, uh, the Ren forest and uh, by nightfall, because they know that the wolves, they also know that there is the crack tooth. There are these, there's a clan of goblins that live in the troll knuckles. And at nighttime, they're going to come out. Well, if they can make it to the forest, guess what? They're going to, uh, the, the, for some reason, the goblins and the wolves do not go in that forest. So that they were kind of like, if we can make it there, we're home free. And, you know, so that's, you know, evading... And evading with a with a with a specific location in mind, based on on what you know about the uh, about the creature in question. So kobolds, you know, if if you got enough of them chasing you, and you know what their social taboos are, that can really help you out. Yeah, right. right. And also, they're prone to tribal warfare amongst themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pit clans against each other. Right. Or perhaps you're being chased by a tribe of kobolds, and you know this goblin clan that they're 
uh, warring with isn't that far away. Perhaps you run towards them and just try to hide as they do battle with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lead them, lead them against each other. Yep. Right, and they can easily be they can be manipulated in those ways. You know, maybe this- you know that there is a truce. Like particularly if you're playing B two, uh, I know a couple of DMs who have used this this uh, this plot. Uh, the humanoids are forming alliances. Yep. You know, uh, start playing them against each other, playing on their natural distrust of one another. You know, yeah. especially the orcs. And, and, you know, the orcs are, are chaotic evil. Right. right? Or, or, yeah, they're chaotic evil. Uh, whereas the hobgoblins and goblins, uh, they're, they're, or the kobolds and hobgoblins, they're lawful evil. There's obviously going to be some mutual distrust going on there. Yeah. Right. You and, know? I, and you can easily see the orcs trying to perhaps enslave a goblin tribe because sure. we're the bigger green skin. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have it in my, my World of Greyhawk campaign that clan uh, Bloodtooth, they are part of the larger Grinning Skull Orcs, uh, the Pomarge. They, hmm. have jo- they have aligned with them. So they're flying the colors of the uh, the grinning skull orcs. Hmm. Okay. So see, you've you've got a nicely fleshed out humanoid, you know, group there, and and mm-hmm. this is where you take a, a weaker race like a kobold, uh, in, as we're discussing, you know, and 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 say, you know, this is how you make them really cool is you mm-hmm. flesh them, you flesh out their society because yeah. kobolds are really, you know, there are one off creatures like owlbears. And then there are society type creatures like kobolds and orcs. You know, they're meant to mm-hmm. be met in mass, not really feared one on one. Like the Kardashians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're just reviled. <laughs> but, but definitely, yeah. So, you know. Deadly in mass, but not feared individually. Exactly. <laughs> right. So a kobold, if you know, if you know that they're a creature that is to, that is best feared in mass, then you define them in mass. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I guess think we covered some good good ground yeah. there. That's going to wrap up the show for today, and hopefully everyone will learn something from this episode, and we'll put this up as a, a good reference episode for new people waiting are uh, learning to play the game for the first time. Hopefully we didn't overload you with information. And, of course, you can always write us at RFIstaff at gmail.com. Call us at 570-865-4210, the hotline. Go to our website, RFIpodcast.com, and click Contact Us. You can ask us a question. Or you can go to Facebook, RFI Staff. I'm uh, sorry, RFI Podcast after Facebook. Or check us out on G+, uh, RFI Podcast as well to ask questions. Or if you know us personally, ask us questions. And I guess that's it. And we'll call keep it original, keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. The Roll for Initiative podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. Roll for Initiative.